Hello and welcome to Switzer Investing. I'm Peter Switzer. Thanks for joining us on tonight's program. We have the CEO of Zip, Larry Diamond, at a time when the company is taking over another buy now, pay later company in Cecil. Why are they doing it? And what's the potential for raising the share price, which really has been clobbered in recent months? Then we have S.T. Wong from the fund manager Prime Value. I've asked him to tell us three stocks that he really likes as a consequence of reporting season. And then what tech stocks might he be now buying on the expectation that somewhere down the track they will have a nice recovery. The three stocks he mentions are very interesting ones. And then we have Margaret Lomas of destiny.com.au. Margaret is one of the best uh, I think educators when it comes to property investing. And I've asked her to give us the golden rules for investing in property and where are the places you should be thinking about if you want to invest in property right now. We know prices right around the, around the country have gone up at a rate of knots. So is there any value out there in some particular areas? If uh, someone's going to know where those areas are, it would definitely be Margaret, Margaret Lomas. So without any further ado, let's go and meet the CEO of Zip, Larry Diamond. Okay, we're talking to the CEO of Zip, Larry Diamond, at a time when they've uh, engaged with a, a big takeover and at a time when the share price is lower than what I want it to be and what lower than what I think Larry wants it to be. Great to see you, mate. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Let's talk about um, the Cezil, um takeover. Mm -hmm. What's behind it? What's behind it? Uh, mm. In short, a great team, um, fast-tracking sustainable growth and scale uh, in, in the US, and, uh, and I think finally bolstering our strategic positions. So we always had on the roadmap to drive, you know, drive prof profitability in, in Australia, and we've got a good profitable business here. Um, and US was on a similar track, but for us, we had a unique opportunity to look at this business. As you said, share prices have been coming down a fair bit, mm. and there was a unique opportunity for us to actually look at this and, and accelerate some of that thinking. Mm. We're surprised that they accepted purely, purely um, zip script for the, the actual price. I think, you know, the business is largely founder-led, and between the two founders, they own about 50% of the business. Mm. So, uh, and they believe there's still a, a long way to go. Mm. Now they recognize that their business was undervalued, but also probably ours was, ours was too. And in fact, if you look at the correlation between the two stocks over the last year or two years, we've traded almost one, one for one, mm. right? And so um, even as the share price came down, we were sort of hedged. The other big thing is the synergy case for this combined uh, merger is actually very attractive. We talk about up to $130 million in annual EBITDA. And so that benefit to obviously Zip shareholders, but also the Cezil shareholders was, was, was very attractive mm. and, and put us in the box seat. Cezil is primarily a, a US business, isn't yep, it? Yeah, that's right. Listed here, but it's a US business. What chunk of the buy now, pay later market in the US will you have as a consequence of this? Yeah, so if you look at the buy now, pay later sector, there's probably about five players. Um, some of them are slightly different. They might play in a different demographic uh, or they might be more focused on long-term instalments. If you look purely at the pain for short-term BNPL space, we'll be one of three or, 
or one of four. Mm. And so if you look at a market size that is America and you think about there might be the six largest credit card issuers servicing the customer of yesterday, mm. older customer, BNPL is really servicing the customer of tomorrow. And so I think we'll be in a very few select companies with, with great brands. They've got Target, we've got Microsoft. We'll have scale that puts us right in the middle of the pack. Mm. A great brand and I think uh, therefore a stronger strategic position. Are they so stronger in a particular region that other buy now, pay later businesses are stronger? Like for example, yeah. are they strong in New York but not LA or vice versa or something like that? Yeah, so when we actually looked at the two businesses more, more, more intimately, mm. we saw it was really complementary. So we found only 25% of uh, their customers overlap with our customers, so mm. in terms of the two. They also built up a very strong merchant network. If you look at our business, we've been much more focused on large merchant, you know, white glove service, mm. deep integrations. We did that with Microsoft and, and other big accounts. They've really built up a wonderful merchant network. They have over 40,000 uh, merchants. So they've got one of the largest footprints of, of, of uh, merchants, which is focused more on small, medium-sized business mm. and, um, and uh, enterprise. And then recently, they've obviously started winning some great accounts like Target, Ikea. Uh, and so I think when you take their checkout business, which is very strong, um, and you mix that up with our business, which is large merchant, but also a fantastic app, we think you bring the two together and you have a much stronger, stronger position. Generally speaking, um the, the market has gone off buy now, pay later. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that's the case? And also other payments businesses as yeah, well, because yeah. you know, PayPal's down, even though PayPal is now playing in your space as well. Why is the market so anti the payments business? Yeah, so I think as you point out, uh, technology, but FinTech in particular, um, payment <coughs> or credit businesses have been materially impacted by, by the recent share market correction. There's probably a few, a few factors at play. Uh, one is, of course, as you know, as interest rates go up, the discount rate goes up, and therefore businesses that have profitability further out are discounted a bit more heavily. Um, mm. you know, that, that's obviously playing, playing a role. Uh, there's also probably question marks over to what extent does a rising interest rate impact the business, mm. either the cost of doing business or, um, or how customers' uh, propensity to pay and sort of repay. And so we put out in our announcement, just, just to show the sensitivity, a 25 basis point increase in interest rates only increases our cost of funds on a per transaction basis by two basis points, mm. right? Also, so a hundred basis point increase in, in cost of money mm. is only a eight basis point increase in our, in, in our margin. So mm. that's not really the problem, mm. right? And in fact, the, uh, the pain for recycles every 21 days. So and did the analysts buy your, your argument? Because it would be pretty easy to prove. Yeah, I mean, I don't, so I think that's less of the problem. Mm. So the question though is, what does a rising interest rate environment do for consumers' propensity to repay? Yeah. You know, how does inflation eat into the wallet? And maybe those are some of the question marks that, uh, that, that the market's asking. Hmm. You know, being the, the CEO of a business, you try to be, irration you try to be rational. Yeah. Do you get frustrated when the market seems irrational? Like, you would have loved it when there was a $12 share price, Absolutely. but you now hate it when it's $1.90 yeah, or $2 yeah. share price. But how do you... How do you learn to deal with that irrationality? Because you, you caught pressure. You, mm -hmm. you know how the business is going. Mm. And, and I'm, I'm sure you'd tell me you're really happy about what the way business is going. Um, how do you deal with it as a CEO, with the irrationality of the, the yeah. market? Yeah, I mean, markets, are, they're always in between the two, the two bookends. Yeah. The, the, the two bookends. First and foremost is actually staff. 
how do we really protect the staff from volatility in share yeah. prices? And even when share prices were sort of very high, we would send out notes to the staff saying, don't rest on your laurels, don't get ahead of yourself. Let's yeah. focus on the, on the numbers. And over time, the market should, should, follow, that, um, should follow that performance. And equally when it, when it goes down. So that's more of a, a, a declining share price for, for our staff is something yeah. that, that we kind of think about. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of the investors as well, for us, we also have to listen to the market. So mm. I also think it's important for us to recognize what's happened over the last six months yeah. and think, do we have to course correct, mm. right? And so there are some things that we're doing to sort of fast track sustainable growth, mm. knowing now that the market wants us probably to get to break even as a group sooner than we had probably forecasted. All right, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but mm -hmm. my, my sketchy memory tells me before you started wearing t-shirts and running a fintech company, you actually worked for an investment right? That's correct, yeah, yeah. so pretty much uh, shirt and tie, otherwise yeah. Yeah. You similar outfit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. So w what do you think n needs to be done by, by Zip mm -hmm. to get those sorts of people, again, thinking, yeah, these guys are heading in the right direction. Yeah. And can I just add one thing to, to the question? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you think part of the, the sell-off for tech and, and, and payments companies w was linked to the, the belief that more and more people thought that the US could increase their interest rates seven to ten times, and now we're hearing Jerome Powell that doesn't seem to be so keen to mm, mm. You know, increase rates. So is that putting those two things together, uh, I, is that relevant to what's happening to the share price now? So uh, so I think maybe, the, so, so the first part of your question around what should investors look for? Yeah. Uh, I think they should look for um, how we're going in the US, mm. and in particular, the merchants that are signing and, and, and some of that growth. So we're very focused on that. It's also why we've, we, we saw Sezzle as a wonderful opportunity yeah. to, to, to scale faster. Um, so look for big merchant wins, mm. and look for us executing on those synergies. Mm. Uh, in Australia, look for us to drive higher profit margin, mm. right? Because I think the market's looking for that. The challenge with our rest of world business is it's going quite well. We're doing about 50 to $60 million a month now, but the market's not really paying us for that. So I think mm. what's important is for us to make sure that we right size our cost base for, 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 for international and, um, and, uh, and then over time, mm. right, we, we can add more as, as more volume and, and uh, revenue comes through. But the, the magnitude and the, the, the rapidity with which as expected, interest rates would rise. Yeah. Did that work against you guys as well? And and if it ends up being because of the Ukraine-Russian yeah. thing, and because maybe maybe mm -hmm. uh, inflation mm -hmm. starts to dissipate over well, the course of this year, yeah. will that yeah. a lower interest rate expectation would that help your business? Do you think? Absolutely, mm. absolutely. So I think, do you believe inflation is transitory, mm. and that as people start going back to work, borders open, supply chains no longer get congested? Um, mm. In China, they go back to work, they have sort of a, less of a zero tolerance. Our view is that inflation should actually subside. Now, yeah. we'll have to see what the market does. Mm. Equally, if interest rates, if they're expecting seven rate rises, eight, and it's now four, that's gonna mean equity valuations will go up and mm. our cost of doing business gets, gets cheaper. So mm. you would expect a correction to the upwards after that. Yeah. I heard a really good explanation by the chief economist at Morgan's, um, Michael Knox, mm -hmm. and he, he believes that inflation will be transitory as well. Okay. Um, and this was probably before oil really took off over uh, the last week. Yeah. But he, he did make the point that as, as um, 
we open up more and more, people will start buying services yes, again. Yes. And so inventories will build up. And as inventories build up, the best way of getting rid of them is lowering prices. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that's a very interesting stage ahead of us as well. Yeah, I mean, if we look at Outlook in the US, it is, it's services, experiences, travel. Hmm. Also, you think about what people were buying. The problem is it's not so much even the supply chain is that people were buying more of different items, like laptops, stands, chairs, hmm. because they were at home. Hmm. If you're not at home as much, so I think it's sort of, the demand was overinflated. The supply, the supply side was sort of struggling as well. So, hmm. I mean, in America right now, I was just having a chat with uh, a client that we're pitching, he said pretty much everyone's back to the office. You know, people are going out to cafes, and that mm. also means that people hopefully also start coming back to work yeah. as well and start to consume. So look, our, our house view is that it is transitory. However, we have to prepare for uh, mm. increasing rate rises. And are you seeing more and more, a, a bigger proportion of zip uh, business mm -hmm. in the services sector as opposed to, you know, people at home buying online and buying product? Yeah. I mean, if you look at Australia for us, we, about a year and a half ago, we introduced a virtual UZIP everywhere, Coles, Woolworths, BP, and we went from two transactions a month to about six. So, mm. you know, our mission is to be the first payment choice everywhere and every day, mm. and we're seeing a lot of in-store, a lot of services, and, um, and in the US we expect a similar, a similar tra trajectory. Okay. Larry, good to see you, mate, and let's hope that share price starts treating you well. Thank you. I hope so too. Larry Diamond, CEO of Zip. Well, it's reporting season and I always like to catch up with those people who watch the market 24-7 and one guy who does is ST Wong of Prime Value. I want to know what stocks he likes as a consequence of reporting season. Welcome to the program, ST. Good morning, Pete. Good to join you. So tell us this, ST, were you impressed with reporting season? I think broadly it came across as um, a positive one hmm. um, in a couple of ways. One, um, as we've been saying for the last two years, um, corporate Australia, balance sheet-wise, very strong. Cash flow-wise, excellent. And largely, I think management teams have been doing a great job managing through um, the volatility um, across a number of sectors in the last 12 months, especially I think in the last six where we have so much interruptions such as Omicron and, and obviously you know, the floods in, in uh, Queensland and New South Wales. So I think given the difficulties uh, operationally, I think the companies have done relatively well in the context of what's happened. So within what's in the control, I think management has come across um, as doing an excellent job um, in this reporting season. Yeah. Are you worried about the potential implications of the Russia-Ukraine conflict? Absolutely. Um, you know, Pete, from, from my perspective, it is clearly um, a potential supply uh, shock to uh, global economies. Uh, on the flip side, though, on Pete, on a brighter note is as you saw from the RBA yesterday and uh, possibly from the US Fed overnight is that um, central banks are probably poised to be less hawkish and that's somewhat on a relative basis positive for markets in that mm -hmm. sense. So on one hand, um, clearly concern on the supply side of things. We've seen oil prices, wheat prices go up. 
Um, and that's, that has implication on potentially slowing global growth. But as we saw from um, Governor Low uh, yesterday and obviously the Fed Chairman uh, Powell overnight, uh, they seem to be somewhat less hawkish in a sense. Uh, they're taking the situation into consideration. Mm. And I think that's a positive note that the market should take away um, in the medium term. Yeah, because I've been personally arguing that I, I think markets fears around an excessive amount of interest rates in a very short period of time was over the top. So I think this gives us a more moderate uh, likelihood pathway for interest rate rises, which I think the market can, can actually live with. Mm, absolutely. I think that that's right. Once it's all baked in from the rate scenario, then the market can kind of focus back on the fundamentals. Um, unfortunately, Ukraine is obviously, um, you know, mudding up the picture, which I think from where we sit, trying to look through the noise, the volatility and the narrative, I think the three key takeaways that I'm trying to implement um, from an investment perspective is, one, um, try to focus less on the noise where the media is concerned. I mean, if I even looked at a Fin review today, the first 10 pages uh, has really been dedicated to uh, the conflict in Ukraine. Um, so flip away from those pages, focus on what matters where investment fundamentals are concerned, which is you know, cash flows. And for a number of our companies in Australia, um, that hasn't changed dramatically, uh, even with the conflict. Um, so that's a key thing to take away as well. But given the noise and the potential for volatility, we should really be focusing on companies, I guess, uh, which are not dependent on the external factors, so to speak, uh, more dependent on what they can control and what they can really push out when, in terms of growth. And we've seen that across a number of companies within the Australian context. So uh, by and large, I think, you know, coming off from the reporting season, I think we're probably more enthused with the outlook than we were, you know, say three to six months back. Okay. Let's, let's just focus on a number of companies that A, have impressed you, and B, as a consequence, you may well have bought more or bought, bought for the first time. Sure. Um, let me take you through maybe by capitalization. So yeah. um, large cap, mid cap, and small cap okay. to give a diversity of what the feel looks like or what we're feeling market perspective, um, we've added to our position in, in Santos. Um, um, Santos is, you know, is the, you know, the second largest oil and gas explorer in Australia, uh, merged with all search recently. Now, it obviously had a tailwind of um, rising oil prices, but really that's not the reason why we bought into Santos. We felt that um, the shares got sold down on the results day and was weak kind of post results but we felt that the fundamentals had continued to be to improve with the merger of all search going forward. So the three key points we take away from, from a company like Santos is that irregardless where oil price uh, trades, whether it's 110 or $80, uh, it's emerged from 2021, a much stronger company by virtue of merging with all search. We think that synergies from the merger will be positive for the company in the medium to long term. And we should be starting to see um, assets being sold off from the all search merger. And it should bolster the, the, um, the very strong cash position that all search 
uh, CentOS has uh, already at this position. So CentOS is one on a large end on a scale, which we've added to um, with, with the post results uh, scenario. Uh, in the mid cap space, uh, eBoss, uh, which is a distributor of uh, pharmaceutical uh, products to chemists such as Chemist Warehouse, uh, Terry White Chemist, which you may have around the corner of, 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 your, um, of your home. We think that's fundamentally another good company in which we feel we're comfortable um, growing at, you know, eight to 12% earnings growth in the next two to three years by virtue of very strong uh, consumption of, I guess, pharma, pharmacy products. And that's a product which is, you know, going to just continue to churn uh, in and out of economic cycles. We, we, we will continue to buy, uh, uh, I guess, pharmacy products, uh, whether uh, the economy is good or bad. I think yeah. the key thing for a company like Ebos is really down to the fact that one, um, it is really a key supply to chemist warehouse, which we know is growing very strongly. So there's growth in that pipeline. Uh, we like the fact that it does have an acquisition. It will bet down uh, in the next 24 months, which will give it synergies, i.e. earnings growth. And finally, we like the fact that management of this company is really strong. Um, it is a New Zealand company, dual listed in Australia and in, in, on the ASX as well. Um, it is not in any Australian um, index, so it's, it's not a company like it's not a company which is really uh, followed by I think Australian fund managers that closely. But I, I think it's a hidden gem in the mid cap space. Uh, and finally, hang, hang, on, hang, small on, hang cap, on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Yep. Hold one second. Let's just make sure we understand the name. You say it's E Boss. Is that the name of the company? Yes. And, and what's That's the ticket? Right. What's the ticket code, Esther? The ticket code is EBO. E B O. Okay. I'm going to say yes. it's, it's a company I don't follow, and it's, um, I'm, okay. intrigued, I'm intrigued about that. E Boss. Okay. Now, right. So as I said, it's it's still listed in the New Zealand Exchange and yeah. on ASX. It's yep. fundamentally. In a New Zealand domicile company, right. yeah. but it is a key supplier to Chemist Warehouse, which yeah. we all it. know the yellow and blue um, shops they have around on High Street or Main Street. Mm. Um, and Chemist Warehouse is obviously one of the fastest growing chemist uh, businesses um, probably in the world. Yeah, extraordinary. Let's go, so, go to your small cap now. In a small cap in our, in our town, uh, we've, we've uh, been adding to our position in a company called Kelsian. It used to be called C-Link, uh, and the traditional business it was it it uh, provided uh, ferry services to Kangaroo Island, right? Uh, and it had a monopoly on that. It expanded into uh, Captain Cook's cruises on the Sydney Harbour, uh, but it also merged with a bus business within Australia. So it's called Kelsian now. The ticket code is KLS, um, and this is a business we feel we're comfortable with for two reasons. One, you look at the share price, it's probably been sold down for the last, in the last six months, something like you know, 30%. But fundamentally, as a bus business, it is really solid. And what we mean by that, it is a key, it is a key provider of bus services to, uh, I guess, uh, councils in Australia, predominantly. Uh, but those services are really uh, not dependent on the passengers. So depending, whether you've got one passenger or 30 passenger uh, alighting on a bus, uh, ceiling or calcium in this case, uh, still get paid because they are paid to provide 
essential, essential services to the community in terms of bus services. Mm. So very solid long-term contracts, uh, they get paid irregardless of the economic cycle. And we think it's been sold down uh, quite a fair bit uh, in the last six months. So that's in a uh, small cap in the town um, in, in that sense. So fundamentally, um, Pete, you, you'll find that, you know, from each of these three companies we're citing, Santos, um, Eboss, and Kelsian, uh, each of these has got key drivers, which are, I guess, unique to each company on its own and really independent of what's really happening with the global uh, macro uh, picture. Mm. So what you're basically saying, you've selected, particularly the last two, uh, you're talking about businesses that are not sensitive to the ups and downs of the economic cycle. Absolutely. I think, you know, within the context of what's happening in the last two months, look, I, I can't predict when the Ukraine-Russian crisis will end. It has a fat, fat tail number of scenarios. I want to be comfortable owning companies which I think will give me earnings growth profile irregardless, irregardless of the macro environment number one, um, can control a number of elements uh, that will drive growth internally. Uh, and finally, number three, I want to be, be owning companies which I, I guess are less reliant on what's happening in the global financial markets. And I think each of these companies, uh, them, each of them are fundamentally strong from a balance sheet perspective. And that removes one concern or one worry I would have do they need to raise new capital? Do they need to re raise new debt, for example? Uh, these companies can operate because of the strong cash flows that they have on the balance sheet. Okay, one last question before I go. Um, we know tech stocks have been sold off pretty substantially. Uh, they've had a bit of a kickback recently. Have you added any tech stocks to your portfolio on the basis that you think down the track, once the interest rate scenario is worked out, that there will be a re-rotation back into tech? Great question, Pete. Uh, let me give you a timeline what, uh, what happened from, from our perspective, what could happen. Um, in the second half of calendar year 2021, we pretty much sold out of any company which um, depended on hope. Hmm. So companies which are not earning uh, any uh, revenue, any profits at this juncture at, at this point, uh, we would be selling those companies. So that was second half 2021. And I think that was the right decision to make. Hmm. Um, at, at the, on the same token, um, what we're saying here is that uh, don't invest based on hope, which means that fundamentally a number of tech companies from our perspective are, are actually still making a lot of money, irregardless where, where valuations are trading today. So companies such as REA, uh, car sales, uh, Seek, the traditional tech companies, very profitable, very high margins, and clearly they, they've been derated substantially in the last six months. You know, REA's share price, for example, is probably, probably off about 30, 35%. So those are sort of companies which, are, we, which we are gravitating to um, in the next six months potentially with the intention of perhaps adding to our position. Mm. And the fundamental framework we're thinking through is well, not, let's not invest based on hope, work through profits, make sure they're fundamentally strong on the balance sheet, and then the valuation will start, start to stack up as, uh, as the share price pe peel back or has peeled back. 
in the last three. And if this volatility continues, uh, some of these companies will make very attractive uh, investments in next, for the next two or three years. Yeah. So, so you do believe tech one day will be loved again, but the safer bet is the, the tech companies that actually make profit. Absolutely, yes. Focus on techs which are actually making money because then you can hang your hat on a valuation, uh, say multiple or valuation number, mm. and that should give you some degree of comfort uh, that when you invest in the dollar, say in you know, REA or SEEK, you should be able to get a return because they're actually making uh, you know, money in that sense. So beyond the major tech companies that uh, we are investing in, you know, like the SEEK, REA, you know, even be the smaller companies such as Hansen or Technology One, highly profitable, highly, uh, highly, a high degree of annuity-based earnings, which should do well in the medium term. So those are companies which we think you should be focusing on uh, where the tech companies are concerned. Great. ST, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Pete. Have a good day. ST Wong from the fund manager, Prime Value. Well, with house prices rising right around the country for the last two years or so, the question for an investor is, where can you find value? The lady who would know the answer to that question is Margaret Lomas from destiny.com.au. Great to see you, Margaret. Thanks for having me, Pete. All right. Uh, and how are you going there with all the rain we're getting in New South Wales? Yeah, look, I was in Noosa last week for a holiday, which was a complete washout. And I, I didn't get my swim in the pool, but I got my swim in Hastings Street anyway. <laughs> um, and now that we're back, luckily my house is high and dry, as you know, you've been here, yeah. but um, a lot of water around the Central Coast. I don't think I'm going anywhere today. Yeah, we're, we're, we're locked. After lockdowns because of the pandemic, now we're locked down because of <laughs> bloody rain. All right. I know, it's crazy. Let's, let's just talk about the fact that, and you'll be aware, well aware of what's happened to prices uh, for, for houses and, and home units. Where does an investor look for value right now? Look, it is very hard because for the first time, definitely in my investing lifetime and in my lifetime as a property investment advisor, which as you would know, is now a very long time mm. um, and probably longer. I think I've been around longer than pretty much any other actual property expert. So it's a very long time. I've never seen a situation before where pretty much every market all around Australia was in its positive growth phase at the same time. Mm. I've always told investors that, you know, just because your property market isn't increasing at that moment in time, there is another one that probably is. But at this point in time, everyone is, is growing. Everything's been growing. So it makes it much harder. But when we talk about value, we have to understand the difference in value for an investor and value for an owner occupier. So for an investor, there are a lot of things that they need to be looking out for now, because the big risk I see in the market is that people who are in property investors who still want to invest, who haven't been frightened off, are now being attacked by FOMO. And so they're jumping into markets everywhere without really considering A, can the growth continue in that market? And B, what's the cost to me of getting into a market where 
values have gone up incredibly, but some of those markets haven't had such increases in rent. Therefore, that disparity between the income that comes in on the property and the expenses you have to pay out is much greater than it used to be if you're financing that as an investment. So the biggest risk is that you go into a property, you pay a lot of money for it, you're getting a low relative rent return, you have a big chunk in between that you've got to fund, hoping for more growth and potentially that growth isn't going to come for a long time yet because we've just come through a pretty big period and we've got some uh, risk factors coming up in the near future. So I think the, the most important thing is first of all, I wouldn't be buying into those markets at the moment that have had the really big growth in the last 12 months. There's quite a few of them. Mm. Sydney, of course, is one. The last decade, we've had a 99% uh, increase in house prices just in the last 10 years. Let's remember that came off the back of a decade where there was an 8% for the total decade. Mm. So over two decades, then it does moderate that growth a little. But I wouldn't be buying into a market like that. There are parts of Melbourne that are probably still okay to buy in. I'd probably stay away from Hobart, but places like Brisbane in particular and to a lesser degree, Adelaide and Perth is in there as well. There's still some value to be had there. And the reason the value is there is because they haven't had the big price growth yet and they still are achieving really handsome yields around the 5% mark. Mm. So even with an interest rate rise, your risk is, is very minimal there. I'd also be careful that I didn't buy into areas that are very sensitive to either mortgage stress or as a byproduct of that interest rate hikes. So we do know and can identify areas that typically experience mortgage stress when interest rates go up and they're the areas I'd stay away from because we may see more supply come onto those markets as people need to sell out because they can't afford their mortgages anymore. Mm. There's two other things that I think are really important for investors in terms of value. The first one is that when you buy into an area, you need to check whether or not it is still cheaper to build and buy something established or the same cost because there are areas with our rising building costs now due to supply issues where it's more expensive to build a new home than it is to buy an established home. They're the areas that are presenting good value because it means that your replacement costs are higher than your buy costs and you'll find that buying an established property is a lot more profitable for you and therefore the demand will fall into that. And I guess the last thing that I like investors to think about, not as their primary motivation, but certainly at the back of their mind, it can be really good if you can buy into a property that may have some kind of future subdivision potential, either a corner block, a larger block, even if the town plan today doesn't allow you to subdivide, say, a, an 800 square metre block, it may well do so in the future as infill development becomes something that a lot of councils are considering due to lack of land. So if there's a lack of land in an area and you can get a property that potentially down the track can be subdivided, you're building in automatic value from the outset because that subdivision could result in um, you getting double the value or at least one and a half times the value, extra yield on that property and the ability to subdivide in some way can create that for you. Having said that, 
don't buy a property just because you might be able to subdivide if the other fundamentals don't stack up in that property for now. Okay, so in a nutshell, what are the golden rules an investor should be thinking about when they're looking at buying a, an investment property now? So I've got four golden rules that I think um, you should um, follow. And of course, I know that we're going to also talk about the mistakes that investors make, which I guess are contrary to those golden rules of things you shouldn't do. But the things that you should do as a property investor is first of all, know that despite the fact that it might seem like it, it is really never too late to buy property somewhere. I've been helping people buy property for over 25 years, been an investor longer than that myself, bought my first property when I was 20, and I'm now 61, so it's a long time ago. And in all of that time, I've never seen us ever get to the point where you can no longer make money out of property. So people are worried that if they don't jump in now, they are going to miss out. And if you have that attitude, then you in, you increase the risk that you're going to buy a property at, at over the market value with too low a yield in the wrong area because you'll make mistakes by not being careful. If you can't find something that qualifies with all the fundamentals now, then don't buy now, wait a little while because there will be markets that will improve and become a better investment. The second thing is that you do need to be prepared to invest away from where you live. And I'm still a little surprised that people, some investors haven't grasped the concept of borderless investing just yet. And I guess you can be forgiven for that because we've had very strong and hard borders in yeah. our country over the last two years. But being a borderless investor is the way you get a better portfolio. And there's plenty to, to support getting a, a, a multi-jurisdictional portfolio, including the fact that it does help you to limit land tax, which is a state-based tax. But it also means that if you're prepared to invest away from where you live, you can access markets that haven't grown yet as well as your area, that are giving a better yield in your area. Always remember that when you move to the area that you live in, it might have been a long time ago and it might have made a good investment then, but a good investment is not just a really fabulous place to live and a, a sought after suburb. It's much more than that. Um, and by investing as a borderless investor, you can access lots of different markets. I'm still stunned at how many people buy investment properties and they don't understand how property investment works and they don't understand fundamentals like taxation. I speak to many property investors who don't have a clue how it impacts on their tax, how to maximise their tax benefits. They don't actually even understand the process of investing. They often don't understand why they're even investing. People think they're investing in property just to make money out of the capital value, when in fact that's not true. And to use as a very brief example, when I first started to buy property, yes, an improvement to the capital value became important to me. I was younger then and I didn't have a lot of assets. Now, as I approach retirement, soon I hope, I have a lot of those assets and I have a lot of capital value under me. But what's become more important to me now is the cash flows. Because if I can have really good cash flows on all of my property, that becomes my income. And I don't care so much about that capital value. I don't need to sell property to get the money to do the things. I can make that out of my rent. So knowing where you're at in your investment timeline, 
how close to retirement you are is equally as important when you're buying property as it is when you're buying shares. Mm. And I guess the last golden rule is just be careful of who you listen to. Booms like the one that we've been going through typically bring out the spruikers. And what the spruikers do is they generally team up with developers and they have property to sell. So they, they disguise themselves as investment experts. They present you with a whole lot of information and make it clear to you that you need to invest in property. And then they conveniently have a property that's just perfect for you. I'm still seeing many people who bring properties to me that have been introduced to them by these spruikers and they are terrible properties in areas that don't have good fundamentals that are going to cost them a lot of money and probably be a very big financial mistake. So don't take investment advice from the person selling you the property. Yeah, good advice. Now, uh, we won't worry about the mistakes because I think by, by definition, you've told us what we should do. But let's just talk about some areas that you think look, look like good value right now. Look, I'm going to sound like a broken record because I say this to you all the time and I, I, and I know over the last two years I have, but I want to clarify very quickly before I say the areas that I think you should be going into. The reason why I typically don't pick areas like Sydney and Melbourne, which undoubtedly have returned a fabulous capital gain to people, is because the average everyday property investor is someone who probably still works at a job and is supporting a family and doesn't necessarily have a huge amount of cash to be able to support a property portfolio with a negative cash flow. So if you are a person with a very high paying job and you can afford those negative cash flow properties where you might have to be putting in $300 and $400 a week out of your own pocket, waiting for growth to happen on that property so that you can one day sell it and have that lump sum cash to retire upon, then Sydney and Melbourne and the big capitals are probably still places that will have opportunities for you. I think Sydney has a bit of growth left in it. I think Melbourne, there's been areas that have been a bit left behind in Melbourne that I think will have growth. But if you're like probably 90% of the rest of the population who don't have that luxury of having that disposable income, then you've got to be able to focus on areas that will first of all pay for themselves. And in this low interest rate environment, there's many, but we need to think about the fact that interest rates will go up and that will reduce the areas that will be like that. And then you have to think about the longer term and know that over time, these kinds of areas that I'm about to talk about have that family demographic that help an area to stay solid and stable and not go up like crazy, like Sydney does, and then sit for 10 years, but grow a little bit every year. Now, of course, I'm talking about Brisbane because we still have the average property in that affordable price range where the average mortgage most people in Brisbane can still afford. We have affordability in markets there. We have high cash flow because we have 5% plus returns, especially in those northern suburbs and starting to move up toward the Sunshine Coast now. And we've got the ability for people to be able to buy property there and hold them as long as they ever need to with no financial stress because of the good cash flows. There are parts of Adelaide now, if we ignore the five kilometre inner ring and go another five kilometres out, so 10 kilometres around uh, Adelaide between five and 10, we've got some fabulous areas there like Modbury, where we're getting a lot of attention and the councils are doing a lot there affordable 
good rent returns and, and a great place to live and the Onkaparinga Shire as well. Don't ignore Perth and the northern suburbs. They say that Yanchip has a lot to go yet. If you've got a long term available to you, it's going to pay for itself and eventually the population there is going to go up eightfold from what it is now over the next 20 years. So in, for my money, that's a really good long-termer. Yeah, Margaret, thanks very much for your contribution. We'll talk in a couple of weeks' time, eh? Excellent. And that's the show for tonight. Thanks for joining us. If you want more insights in how to invest in the stock market, think about taking out a subscription to The Switzer Report. Go to switzerreport.com.au. Thanks for joining us. I'll see you on Monday night.